coming to Budrum and particularly to see so many young people. That's great. I'm a member of the University of the Third Age. Nothing to do with New Age. It means you've got to be over the age of 60 and I just qualify. Now, I go to two discussion groups and I'm meeting atheists there. And they're not ashamed to come out publicly and say, I'm an atheist. I became an atheist through reading this book. One guy, a very outspoken atheist, he turned up at the discussion group uh, last Friday, not this recently, but the one before, and he was wearing a rather large medallion thing around his neck, and uh, I think it was a seashell. I said, oh, you're looking very nautical tonight, today, and he said, oh, that's to keep the Christians away, right? That was his, that was his response. I said, it's not working. <laughs> anyway, why am I saying this? Because our topic today is the existence of God. And I'm discovering that there are quite a lot of atheists out there. The Bible talks about the fool saying in his heart there is no God. People are advertising that they're fools unashamedly. I want to do two things today. I want to strengthen our faith in the existence of God. You might say, well, no Christian ever doubts that. Don't you believe it? I picked a book up at the library written by someone who had been to the best seminary or good seminary in the United States and it appeared had been a very strong believer in God and this book was about why he no longer believed in God. Now I'm not arguing whether he's going to heaven or not, that's not my point. My point is that atheism is fairly widespread and if many do not tick the atheistic box, they live as if there is no God. They are practical atheists. I want to strengthen our faith, but I also want to give you something that you can use when you meet people who question the existence of God. So let's get started. We'll have a little quiz, first of all. What do you see? A vase or faces? Hands up for the vases. Hands up for the faces. Okay, we're divided on that one. What about this one? Hands up if you see an, a young woman. Hands up if you see an old woman. Some of you can't see any woman by the look of it. <laughs> I think the young woman is easier to see. She's looking well to the left and that protruding part is her chin. The old woman is looking more to her right and the protruding part is her nose. And what was the ear of the young woman has become the eye of the old woman. Who can see both of them? Some of you. Okay, let's move on. Is that a word or a face? Well, it depends whether you're looking in uh, landscape or... Whatever the other one is, <laughs> portrait. <laughs> okay. What's the point? The point is this. Both could be true, but it doesn't matter. Who cares whether, that, whether that's an old woman or a young woman, a vase or faces? Not important. But when we come to some other matters, 
Some of them just can't both be true, and it does matter. And our topic today is in that category. There either is a God or there is not a God. You can't have it both ways. It's not like the vases or the, the women. And it does matter. It's a matter of life, death, eternal life, eternal death. So this is not a subject we can dismiss. And I believe that we as Christians, and I'm very pleased, I've, I speak with Lindsay regularly, he knows I'm pleased that you are doing this series on faith blockers. Because there are people out there, and some of, that, some of them, I believe, are sincere atheists. In other words, they believe that the evidence points more towards the non-existence of God than the existence of God. Now, you may want to question that, but I do believe that many of them have examined, thought deeply about these issues. And certainly we should not rubbish them. We should treat them with respect as people who are thinking people. So I'm pleased that you are doing this series and I hope that you will use what you're learning over these weeks because the bottom line here is that we can go out and help people who have put up these barriers against the truth. So let's get into it. The most well-known atheist today is Richard Dawkins. There he is in the bus that has his motto on the side of it. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's his philosophy. He's written a number of books. Perhaps his most famous is The God Delusion. And he's made a lot of money out of that book and others. Let's unpack his view. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. When you meet an atheist, it's often good to say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And when they've described the God they don't believe in, you will probably say, I don't think I believe in that God either. Because many atheists have a very false notion of God. They've picked up bits and pieces about God and they are, as it were, shooting down a straw man. That's a good point to remember. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Now, Dawkins says that there's probably no God. And he thinks that's sufficient reason to be a very aggressive atheist. I wonder if we had a cyclone pass through here and Dawkins was staying at our house and there was a bare power line that had been blown off the local pole there and I said to him, oh, it's probably not live. Do you think he'd pick it up? I don't think so. Let's suppose that a snake slithered past. It's probably not poisonous. Would he pick it up? I don't think so. And yet, when it comes to God, he says, there's probably no God. And he dismisses God and runs with atheism. And yet, the existence or non-existence of God is far more important than whether or not that 
wire is live or that snake is, is poisonous. Now he implies that Christians worry a lot. Well, I want to ask Mr Dawkins and his fellow atheists, do atheists worry less? I've seen a video presentation of Richard Dawkins with a, a fellow uh, lecturer or professor from uh, Oxford University. I don't think his opponent looked more stressed out than Richard Dawkins. I think, it, if anything, it was the other way around. Now, I don't think really good Christians worry anything like atheists do. Because Christians can cast their burden upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for them. Are atheists happier than believers? Because he is implying that if you believe in God, you will not enjoy life as much as if you do not believe in God. That is implied in his statement. Are they happier? I don't think so. I've met atheists and I don't think they're happier than Christians. I heard of a Christian who said after his conversion, I'm happier now when I'm sad than I was before when I was happy. Peter says, believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That sounds like a very happy person. He can't even describe the joy. It is unspeakable joy. I had the privilege of speaking at my daughter's wedding in Sydney in January and it was a highlight of our year. And uh, I spoke about an acrostic fish. because the husbands are fishermen. So I told them about the acrostic in Greek that the early Christians had, Ichthus, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. Then I gave him an English version of fish and urged my daughter and son-in-law to be sure about fidelity to the covenant they were making that day. And integrity... And salinity, I had to explain that, that they would be salt and light in the world. And the H, well, what does that stand for? We've had fidelity, integrity, salinity. I had to have a word that started with H and it had to have four syllables in and have the accent in the same place. So I came up with hilarity. <laughs> now, there's a Greek word, hilaros, in the Bible. And if your name's Hillary, it probably means that you are a cheerful person because that's what it means. But hilarity maybe is pretty close to unspeakable joy. It's hilarious! So I don't think atheists are happier than believers at all. Now, he implies that Christians would be happier if they could do the things that atheists are allowed to do but which Christians are not allowed to do. So I want to know, Mr Dawkins, what are the in additional enjoyments that you have in your life that, as a Christian, I can't do? Now, I don't know what you're thinking about. 
But when I look at the way non-Christians enjoy themselves, it's often through extramarital affairs, it's often through pornography, it's often through getting drunk on Saturday night and having a hangover on Sunday morning and ending up maybe king-hitting somebody on the Malulabar Esplanade. I don't know that that's real enjoyment. What can they do? I don't think most of the things that they permit themselves to do are worth doing. Now you'll notice that there's an element of doubt in what Dawkins says here. There's probably no God. He doesn't say there's definitely no God, but there's probably no God. He's got a bit of doubt, which suggests that his position has an element of faith. I'll come to that more in a moment. But you see, doubt and faith go together, really. I never doubt guitars exist or pianos. Never doubt them. I did meet a man once who wasn't sure if trees existed. And he didn't seem to be an escapee from the local lunatic asylum. He seemed to be a very rational sort of a man. But I think to his credit, he drove his car as if they did exist. That would be wise. But doubt is only possible in the realm of faith. Because faith is the substance of things, what is it? Not seen. Not seen. There's an unseen element in faith. Have I seen God? No. A well-known evangelist in Sydney, John Chapman, if he has asked, have you seen God? He says, I was 2,000 years too late. He was here on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. So I missed out on seeing him. What you can say to an atheist when you meet one is it's always good to meet another person of faith. That will take the wind right out of their sails because they hate the thought that somebody might think that they take their position by faith. But there's a lot of faith in atheism. It doesn't have very good grounds. There's a lot of faith there. So let's pursue this matter a little further. I've said that in the realm of faith, a doubt is always a possibility. Do Christians ever doubt? I think most do. I think most do. Doubt is not sin. It's a temptation to the sin of unbelief. And when we're tempted, we should resist the temptation and get back onto the platform of faith. C.S. Lewis said, Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Now, did you hear what he's saying there? Atheists have their doubts. They have their probabilities. They also have their 
moments of faith that Christianity might be terribly probable. Those flashes of faith for an atheist are terrible to behold and they quickly go back to the humanist society and strengthen their faith in their atheism. Now Alfred Lord Tennyson, very well-known British poet, wrote a poem called The Ancient Sage and I've appreciated what he said there. For nothing worthy proving can be proven nor yet disproven. Wherefore, thou be wise. Cleave ever to the sunnier side of doubt. Yes, there's a lot of good stuff in that. The sunnier side of doubt. Oh, if God is only probably there, the sunnier side of doubt says, well, you opt for Christianity, you opt for Faith, because when you die, you live forever, happily. And you enjoy life more here, if the truth be known. We haven't really started our arguments yet. I'm just laying the foundation. So fasten your safety belt here. This is not the last point coming up. The possibility of doubt does not necessitate uncertainty. Ask the martyrs. Some of them have died excruciating deaths. There was a series on television a couple of years ago about the Inquisition. And a man was boiled in oil and it took 15 minutes for him to die. But he died hanging on to his conviction. There is a God and he's worth dying for. In British history, many, many believers were burned alive at the stake under the reign of bloody Queen Mary. I'm not swearing. Think of that death. Sometimes the wood was damp and the death took longer. They died because they weren't uncertain of what they believed. Dear, oh dear, if it was only 50-50 and you were going to boil me in oil, I might switch sides. But if you really believe, as Job did, though he slay me, Yet will I trust in him. Ask the thousands for whom Christ has delivered from addictions. They've been on methadone, they've been to counsellor after counsellor and they simply trusted in Christ as their saviour and were delivered. Tell them that God doesn't exist. I'll laugh in your face. I heard of a man who was... Ah, surely you don't believe that nonsense about Jesus turning water into wine, do you? He said, well, I only know that over at my house he's changed beer into furniture. <laughs> now a man who's experienced that, not to mention his wife and children, are very sure that God exists. AA couldn't do it. 
Willpower couldn't do it. But God did. What about the millions of prayers that have been answered? Many of them so miraculously. The famous prayer warrior is George Mueller, known to all brethren people. In his lifetime, more than 10,000 orphans, orphans went through his orphanage who all had to be fed daily in answer to prayer because no begging letters were sent out saying, we're running short of funds, we don't know how we're going to feed the orphans next month. And you've all heard the story of the matron coming to Mueller and saying, we've nothing for breakfast. He said, get the children to sit in the dining room. 300 kids sat down to an empty table. Mueller went to prayer and there was a knock at the door. A baker couldn't sleep at night. God burdened him to bake loaves of bread for the orphanage. So he baked three batches and delivered them. A bit later, milkman, his cart has broken down outside. Ten cans of milk are given to the orphanage. Not one night did those kids go to bed, all 10,000 more and more, and all because prayer was answered. I'd love to tell you other miraculous stories of answered prayer, one in particular from Africa, but we'll have to move on to Budrum. Um, many homes have been turned around. Marriages on the brink of divorce. Salvaged because Christ came into the relationship. Tell them that God doesn't exist. Not to mention the experience of every Christian whose burden of guilt has been lifted through faith in a God who forgives on the foundation of Christ's death for them. Then those who despair of life to the point of suicide but who are given hope through God. Tell them that he doesn't exist. They're very sure indeed. Now I'm going to look at two arguments that atheists use and then I'm going to give you some arguments that Christians can use. Now it's inevitable that what I'm going to say is going to overlap with other barriers that you have raised. You can't talk about the existence of God and not look at other barriers that people raise. So let's begin with one of the most commonly used arguments. Science has debunked God. One of the very vocal atheists, the one that has this pendant to keep Christians away, um, well his patron saint is Charles Darwin, no doubt about that. And uh, he dismisses belief in God as being like belief in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the man in the moon. And he would not think, I am sure, that any self-respecting scientist could believe in God. Well, he doesn't know too much about scientists. Let me introduce one to you. Dr. Francis Collins. He began his academic um, studies in chemistry. He switched to medicine and he has a PhD and was appointed as the leader of the Human Genome Project, which looked at the DNA, which is a very complicated science. 
and uh, there were 2,500 scientists working on this project around the world. He estimates that 40% of scientists are believers. Now, we're not talking about people who studied physics in grade 10. We're talking about people who are professional scientists who have probably postgraduate degrees. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I can think of three people with uh, significant degrees in science, all of whom were very, very strong believers. Now, that needs to be kept in mind because, you see, atheists often belittle Christians as being somewhat uh, short in the top story. There's no doubt about it. And they pride themselves. One of the atheists, the group that I go to, he is a rationalist, you see. And he would think that Christianity is irrational. No, there are many signs. In fact, I would make so bold as to say that there are probably a similar number of proportionally Christians within the scientific communion community as there are in the wider community. Now, here's an important point. Science has no ability to comment about things that are outside of nature. Yes, they can talk about the temperature at which water boils and about how water can... Uh, expands between 4 degrees centigrade and zero, and they can tell you about sound and uh, light and so on and so on, yes. But they're not qualified to tell us whether there's a God or not. And I want to illustrate this. That is a tin whistle, and I've brought it along here. Suffer as I play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so on. You know the tune, I think. All right. That sound has emerged from there. And I'm going to put it over here. Uh, because I want you to imagine that a scientist who is outside the door there has heard this noise and has walked in. And he says, I, I heard a sound here. I wonder what made that sound. I need to investigate. Find a reason for this sound. And he might start tapping on the walls. No, that doesn't do it. He might ding on the piano. That doesn't do it. What is it? I wonder about this thing over here. It's a tube. Now, uh, no, that doesn't do it. Uh, uh, we're getting close. So when air is applied here, it causes the air inside this column to vibrate at a certain frequency and the sound wave produced travels through the air and hits a piece of skin on the side of one's head, which by means of various bones and other mechanisms goes through to the brain, and we hear the sound. And these little holes here, well, 
they're probably to alter the length of the tube so as to alter the pitch of the sound, the frequency of the sound. Well now, you can tell I'm not a scientist, but he is, and he can explain the science of the sound that he has heard. Now I'm a bit miffed because in his explanation, he didn't mention that I had made the sound. He didn't mention that, <coughs> and I'm rather put out about that. But then he is not capable. It could have been you that made the sound, or you, or you. So he is not, I'm yelling, he is not capable of telling us about the musician. And Beethoven's missed, miffed, because that sound would not have been heard by anybody if it were not for Beethoven. You heard of him? And Mrs. Jones is miffed because she asked me to play that tune. It was a request because they played it at her wedding and she, wedding and she got goosebumps when she heard it played. In other words, it's too simple to just give a scientific explanation of the universe which rules out God when God might be any one of those people. He certainly is the author, the creator. And let me say this, and I want to emphasise this because Christians differ. They differ very much upon the way in which God did it and how long it took him. And I'm not going to get into that argument. I believe that the Bible is far more interested in the who than the how. Now you can think the how is important and I'm not dismissing it. I'm simply saying it is more important to emphasise the who than the how. You cannot say that's wonderful music and not give Beethoven credit for it. You don't give the pipe. And by the way, I was going to mention but he's not here. Noel McFerrin pipes up and he says, that's an Irish whistle. My uncle makes those things. You see, there's a lot of people involved in that music. There's me, there's Mrs. Jones, there's Beethoven, there's Noel McFerrin's uncle. Are you hearing what I'm saying here? It is all too simple. But they think it's so learned and rational. Here's another man you may not have heard of. Anthony Flew was an atheist for most of his academic life. He was a philosopher, taught in various universities. And to everybody's surprise, towards the end of his life, in 2005, he professed belief in a divine creator. Why? Well, he takes Dawkins to task. Dawkins made five references in his book, The God Delusion, to Albert Einstein, no mere scientist. And he said he makes no mention of Einstein's most relevant report, namely that the integrated complexity of the world of physics has led him to believe that there must be a divine intelligence behind it. 
and he's very annoyed with Dawkins. In fact, he could hardly put words on paper to describe his annoyance because he said, Dawkins ignores the strongest argument of Einstein. And this is a lesson for all of us. You know, you can fiddle with the fringe of your opponent, but if you're going to be a sound debater, you have got to attack their strongest point, not their weakest points, because you'll leave them in unbelief if you leave their strongest point intact. And Dawkins does not listen to Einstein's strongest point. Well, Anthony Flew goes on. I myself think it obvious that if this argument is applicable to the world of physics, as Einstein said, then it must be hugely more powerful if it is applied to the immeasurably more complicated world of biology. Now here's another argument used by atheists, and you've dealt with this, I think, already. It's impossible for me not to deal with their arguments without overlapping, so let's briefly look at this. Now let me go back for a moment. The argument that atheists will put up is something like this. God must be weak. There's all these bad things happening in the world, God is too weak to stop them. Or they say, perhaps he could stop them, but he doesn't care. He doesn't love people, so he allows it to go on. Now, they would think it's a very strong argument. Let me say that it is a difficult argument to address. You can't pull out a rabbit from the hat and solve every instance of evil in the world. There are dozens of reasons for the occurrence of evil. Sometimes they're our own fault. Somebody's some wicked man. Could be Hitler. And on and on it goes. But that, in brief, is their argument. Well, Norman Geisler says, the argument assumes that nothing has been nor will be done to destroy evil. A lot has been done, not least at the cross. I was up in Samoa <coughs> last year. I think if I'd gone there a hundred years ago, I'd have been breakfast for the Samoans. I don't, I kid you not. But you couldn't go to a village without seeing a church or two and on Sunday, most of the people in church, all because some people took God to Samoa and some of them were eaten, killed for their efforts. God has done a great deal and he's yet to do a great deal. The Bible is full of references to a judgment where evil will be thoroughly dealt with. C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist and he used to use this argument but he found it was too simple. Now you'll have to listen hard as I read his argument and why he believed it was too simple. My argument against God 
was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Now, you may want to read that again for you. I think you'll find it in, uh, certainly in the book, The Case for Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I think it may even be in the uh, broadcast talks that he gave, Mere Christianity. Here's a question that you can ask. If an atheist comes up with this problem of evil argument, why doesn't God do something? Doesn't he love people? Can't he handle the problem? Ask the question, what do you want God to do? Now, one of the most horrific examples of evil in the 20th century was the murder of six million Jews during the Second World War. If that wasn't evil, I don't know what is. I heard part, only part, of a, a radio program where this whole issue came up. Where was God when that happened? And this person, possibly a Jew, said, he spoke. You shall not kill. God did do something. God has already done something about things like the murder of a French girl in Brisbane who's left for dead naked in a park or a Korean girl slaughtered in Albert Park in Brisbane just recently. That's the world we're living in. But you see, if you don't have a God, well, you don't have to take any notice of his thou shalt not kill. So what do you want God to do? Let's take Hitler. What should God have done? Well, they might say, well, he should have sent a bolt of lightning down and struck him dead before he killed one Jew. Well, that would help. But hang on, let's follow our argument a bit further. If he'd only killed five million Jews, would you still want to zap him? What about 
A hundred Jews? What about just one Jew? Where are we going to draw the line as to when God steps in in a dramatic way and stops people? You see, this God, whom atheists don't believe in, is a holy God. He's holy. And his standard of holiness is far higher than any ethical standards we've got in this world. Where's he going to draw the line? Is it wrong to kill six million Jews, but okay to be greedy and to accumulate wealth while people around are starving? Is lust in your heart not grounds for being zapped, but adultery is ground for being zapped? Well, Jesus didn't draw that kind of distinction. Do you know how many people would survive if God stepped in in the way atheists want him to step in in relation to people like Hitler? How many people would? None. None. Not one of us. We all deserve to be zapped. Now, this argument used by atheists would no doubt include the evil perpetrated by the Christian church. And sad to say, some dreadful things have been done in the name of Christianity. Dreadful things. The St. Bartholomew's massacre in France, for example, where in just one or two days, hundreds and hundreds of French Christians slaughtered by the Catholic Church. I mentioned Bloody Queen Mary. All of that is done in the name of Christianity. I mentioned the Inquisition. People tortured in the name of Christianity. And then you could go and talk about the Crusades. Christians should apologise to the Muslims for the Crusades. Now, John and, and uh, his team are just coming back from Israel. Yes, learn all you can about Christ through a vis visit to Israel, if you want. But those places are not places where we have to make a pilgrimage. They're not places which we ought to actually almost worship. And if the Muslims take over those, we've got to knock the brains out of them and get those places back, which is what the Crusades was all about. We're all about? No. We should apologise. I think they've got long enough memories to remember what happened back there. And it makes Muslim evangelism the more difficult. Now we've got a royal commission into child abuse by priests, even the Salvation Army have come before that commission and one officer wept at the commission. Now, how do we respond to this? Because for atheists, this is a very powerful argument. I've told this before and I'll tell it again because it's rather cute. Abraham Lincoln was probably having a political speech and one of his uh, listeners probably giving him a hard time so he said to this man 
how many legs has a cow got? And the man said, four. And then Lincoln said, if we call his tail a leg, how many legs has he got now? And the man said, five. No, said Lincoln. Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Are you all with me or are you struggling with that one? What's Lincoln's point? Calling something Christianity doesn't make it Christianity. And I believe the Christian church, sadly, is responsible for a lot of the unbelief in our world. And we need to identify with that and make sure that we are not part of that problem. There are any number of people who were made to go to church when they were kids. And they were altar boys and they sang in the choir. And they saw all the ritual but they sensed there was no life. And they were struggling with sin and temptation in their own hearts and they didn't find that Christianity works. They had been inoculated against the real thing. And I think the Muslim religion began in part because Christianity in North Africa was dead. It's serious. So we've got to disbunk, debunk this notion that atheists have that anything that goes by the name of Christianity is Christian. Built into the word Christian is the word Christ. And he said, not slaughter your enemies. He said, love your enemies. <coughs> Christ's likeness is the best witness we can give to atheists. Oh, I love the story. I haven't got time to tell you, but I'm going to. <laughs> a man who was a hobo, a drunk, homeless man, went into a mission one day, heard the gospel, accepted Christ and was transformed. He kept coming to the mission to help. If someone vomited a pound of prawns up, Joe would be there to mop it up. Somebody couldn't find his bed in the drunken state, Joe would put him into bed and tuck him in. He swept the place, kept us spotless in gratitude for the change that he'd experienced in his life. And one day another man came into the mission. A man whose life was just like Joe's had once been. He heard the message and he came forward to the penitent rail and he began to pray and the missioner was walking along in front of the others and he heard this man praying, Oh God! Make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. And the missioner said, don't you mean make me like Jesus? He said, is he like Joe? <laughs> no, you can laugh at that, but quite frankly, I'm impressed. Joe was Christ-like. And he obviously made a powerful impression upon his fellow man. You know, we don't impress people by building big cathedrals, by dressing up in robes, or even by singing songs. It's reality that people are looking for.
People have got far more time for Jesus than they have for the church. There are many people with a great respect for Jesus. At one of our discussion meetings, the question was, name five people that you'd like to come back from the dead and have dinner with. Well, one of these atheistic guys, the rationalist one, he said he had Buddha in there and he had Jesus in there. He's still got a respect for Jesus. All right, I'm going to give you four C's to help you remember things that you can use when you meet your next atheist. And some of these may not at first seem to be helpful. Here's the first one. This is, is helpful. Wilbur Smith, an apologist, means he argued the case for Christianity. He said, it always seemed to me that a man who could predict his death and that three days later he would rise from the dead should be taken seriously with respect to everything else that he ever said. Now, that's very wise. I could start a new religion. I think I've talked like this before, but some of you weren't here, so I'll tell you all again. I could start a new religion. I, I could say, listen, I've discovered, or I believe, that out on Pluto there is a little green being who loves you. And he has wonderful plans for you. All you have to do is believe that he exists and pay $10 to me, 10% of your income every week, right? And when you die, you will go to live on the other side of Pluto, outside the range of our telescope, where there's this paradise that is just so wonderful. Now, I don't think I'd get my religion off the ground if that's all that I said. But if I said to the three rather mentally disabled people who are coming to my meetings that um, I have some bad news for you because... On my way home, a steamroller is going to run over me and flatten me, but I'll be back next week in three dimensions. Now, <laughs> let's suppose that these people witnessed my tripping in the middle of the road, the steamroller rolls over me, and there I am like a cane toad that's been run over. Now, that's the end of me. But hang on. They turn up next week, and there I am. I think they might start paying me. <laughs> they might start believing. You know, one of the challenges you can give to an atheist is, why don't you start a religion? You say that it's just like the tooth fairy to believe in God or Santa Claus. Well, you invent a God and get the results that Christianity has got with, got with this tooth fairy God. You'll be struggling, my friends. I don't think too many martyrs will give their lives for your position. I don't think too many will leave their homes and go to foreign countries to share the good news of your tooth fairy God. It might help if you get yourself crucified and rise again from the dead, though. That might help the cause, because that's what happened. And I don't need to go into the evidence for the resurrection. It is very strong indeed. That's the first C. Here's the second one. Creation. Oh, now this one gets a laugh from the atheists. 
And I think you've probably covered this in an earlier week, and I'm not going to go into the detail of it. I want to just say this. Where do we read in the Bible about creation? I'll give you 5% for that. The creation is all the way through the Bible. I was reading this morning from Psalm 95. Don't turn to it. But just let me read a little. We had a worship service here at 9 o'clock. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. And the next word is for. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. That's about creation, isn't it? But it's in the context of worship. And I want to make this point because I think we have separated creation from its ultimate ideal context. Finish this text. The heavens declare the glory of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God. One of our kids, when he was quite little, said to his mother, who made trees? She said, God did. He said, God must be clever. That is a response from a three or four-year-old to the truth that God made trees. That's what worship is. Worship is response. And God wants a response. Now, one of the well-known atheists on the ABC is Philip Adams. He's a vowedly atheist. And he became an atheist about the age of five, I think. I think maybe through the problem of evil. He gets atheists on board. And one day... I must have been talking about the universe, about the world, and so on. He said, it's wonderful, and it's, it's as if you want to say thank you, but there's nobody out there to say thank you to. That's sad. But hang on. Philip Adams, where did this sense of wanting to say thank you come from? Romans 1 says... It isn't that people didn't know about God, but they didn't want God. So they ditched God, but they didn't become unbelievers in anything. They made images to look like created things and worshipped those images. It is built into us to want to worship. And wherever you go, they're either worshipping the spirits of the lagoon or they're worshipping Hindu gods or some other false god. And if it's not some image, then it may be their investments in the stock exchange. Worship. The wow factor. 
Here's Romans 1. And because time has gone, I'll rush this through. Look at the yellow bit. God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Without excuse. That doesn't sound like a probability. God probably doesn't exist. You can't say they're without excuse if it's only a probable God that we believe in. When Paul spoke at Lystra, he said, turn from these worthless idols back to the living God who gives you fruitful seasons, the rain. Now, the scientist says, oh, yeah, but they just didn't know where rain came from. No, I read in the Psalms that it came from the clouds. Most of these people were farmers. They knew about the weather. There's a Bishop Spong who doesn't deserve to be a bishop who's a total unbeliever in most of the decent things in the Bible. He says, we don't need to believe in the virgin birth now because we understand biology. What rubbish. He's a bishop, not in Australia. It was because Joseph did understand the biology of human reproduction that he wanted to put away his fiancée because he said to himself, not, oh, this is a miracle. I had nothing to do with it. It must be God. No. He said, there's some hanky-panking been going on here. I don't think it was my wife's fault. Somebody has taken advantage of her, and so I'm going to put her away very privately so that she is not further embarrassed by this whole thing. But he didn't bring God into it at all. It was because he did understand the science and he had to have an angel to tell him what had really happened. Conscience. Listen to the text. When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Yes, people know right from wrong. And if you got the man who murdered that French girl, perhaps in one of his better moments, when he perhaps wasn't on drugs or whatever was going on there, and you said, do you think it's right that you should do what you did? He knows in his heart that it is wrong. Romans 1 says they not only know these things are wrong, but they go ahead with it and even make light of it. Now Christianity, oh, we're back to this one. This was a problem before, but I'm not talking about the tail of the cow now, friends. I'm talking about one of the legs. I'm talking about true Christianity. That is a powerful argument. Just yesterday I heard about Billy Graham being invited to have dinner with the Queen on the Britannia when it was still in operation. She was visiting California and Billy Graham and his wife were invited. And as he went up the gangplank, there was an officer there, probably a sailor dressed in his white uniform. And when Billy Graham passed, he said, 
Haringey, 1954, sir. Some of you don't know what that's all about. Haringey was where Billy Graham had his London crusade in 1954 and this man had been converted there. You go to Sydney today, I'm not sure whether who the Archbishop is there, but he and his brother converted in 59 when Billy Graham was here. And I'd say quite a lot of people in ministry from that era, 1959, date their conversion back to the attendance at a Billy Graham crusade. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Whole people groups have been changed. You could go to New Guinea and people who were once headhunters or cannibals are now worshipping God on a Sunday morning like this. Christianity is a powerful apologetic for God. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not simply because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, Christianity makes sense of life. It tells us where we came from. It tells us that we're not a little higher than the monkeys. It tells us that we're a little lower than the angels. It tells us the real cause of humanity's problems. We are fallen. And this world is never going to sort out its problems unless it gets the divine perspective on what the real problem is and the divine solution which is found only in Christ. Christianity is a proven solution to humanity's problems. It gives purpose for living. It gives a hope for the future. In other words, it makes sense of life. That's what Lewis is struggling with. If this is a senseless thing, no, it's got a lot of sense. But you only find out that it's sensible. You know, the curious thing about atheists is this. If we simplified their view of where God came from, they would have to say that once upon a time everybody was an atheist, but there were things they couldn't, under, couldn't explain, and then there was death, and what happened after death. They asked all these questions, so they invented God. But having invented him, they don't like him. Now, I don't think atheists would have invented the God of the Bible. I think they'd have invented a God who was a little bit more indulgent so that they can enjoy the life that Richard Dawkins thinks that atheists have. When I was a kid, we used to have a little story about the two men were having their dinner and one opens his lunchbox. He says, oh, I don't peanut butter sandwiches again and he throws them away. Next day, same thing happened. Oh, no, peanut butter sandwiches again. Throws them away. After three or four times of this, his mate says, why don't you tell your wife to put something else on your sandwiches? She doesn't make them. Who makes them? I do. <laughs> now, I think atheism is a bit like that. You know, I don't like God. Who made God? Atheists made God because he's an invention. Now, I'm nearly finished, so cheer up. I know I've taxed your posteriors, but uh, just hang in there for a minute because this is important. Voltaire is well known. A lot of people would think Voltaire was an atheist. No, he wasn't an atheist. I don't think the Catholic Church of the 18th century helped Voltaire to like the church. He was not a friend of Christianity. But he said, it is perfectly evident to my mind that there exists a necessary, eternal, supreme and intelligent being. This is no matter of faith, but of reason. That's Voltaire. And listen to this. 
if God did not exist, one would have to invent him. I want my attorney, my tailor, my servants, even my wife to believe in God and I think I shall then be robbed and cook-holded less often. <laughs> cook-holded means his wife will be more likely to be faithful to me if she believes in God and that is absolutely true because our world is living without any reference point for our morals and our nation... I believe, is in grave danger because where once every family felt the kids ought to go to Sunday school, now very few do. There was a church on every corner. They're now antique shops. And the ethical resource that was established through that exposure to Christian teaching is gradually dwindling and we're going to run out and we'll have every man doing what is right in his own eyes. The alternative is unthinkable. Do you know, Francis Schaeffer was absolutely correct when he said you can test the truth of something by taking it to its ultimate conclusion. If homosexuality, for example, is okay for Barry and John, it's okay for Steve and Arthur, and you could go on, it's okay for everybody in the world. Well, how long will the world last? Not very long. Take it to its conclusion. Now, let's take atheism to its conclusion. If there's no God, then I'm not accountable to anyone. If I can fiddle my tax return, so be it if I can get away from it. If I can murder six million Jews to make our country stronger and take over the world, I'll do it. That's a recipe for disaster. Absolute disaster. The alternative is unthinkable. Here's a challenge to atheists. Jesus said, if anyone chooses to do God's will... He will know whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You know, the state of our, our heart can help or hinder our knowing whether something is from God or not. If I was to fiddle with this thing here, I've got this little bit of mechanical thing here on my thing now. I'm going to put this earphone into my ear and I'm going to twiddle the knobs here. Oh, I can't pick up the ABC. The ABC doesn't exist. Now, I'm being silly. But you see, it's not that the ABC doesn't exist. It's just that there's something wrong with this equipment to contact the ABC. I believe that a lot of atheists is a choice. A lot of atheism is a choice because it gives them that freedom that Dawkins wants to enjoy life in that questionable method that he thinks Christians can't enjoy life in. And if you read Romans 1, you'll find that atheism leads to immorality and all kinds of wickedness. Jesus, on trial before Pilate, says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I want to say to Mr. Dawkins, I want to say to every atheist in the world, do you really want to know the truth? Or are you just comfortable with your rather weak arguments for your position? Jesus said, seek and you will find. Pilate is not wanting an answer to what is truth. That is a dismissal. Oh, what is truth? 
He's trying to get rid of Jesus. And that's what people do today. Oh, that's your opinion. There was an, uh, an evangelist called R.A. Torrey, and he said this to atheists. If you really want the truth, I want you to do this. Take the Gospel of John and pray this prayer. Oh God, if there is a God, as I read this, if you show me that it's true, that I will embrace it. And he's found success in doing that. Do they really want the truth? Well, seek. If you seek for me with all of your heart, I will be found of you. Here's an old hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found a Saviour true. No, I was found of thee. And looking back in your own experience, you know that God reached down. The next verse says, Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. It was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, took hold on me. I find, I walk, I love. But oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. You know, in eternity past, if you're a believer, God set his love upon you and he drew you to himself. And when you look back, you see his sovereign hand in the work of your salvation. Well, I had planned that we would sing this because you know the tune. Shall we sing one verse? Would that stand? Let's sing one verse of this. Uh, I found that it went to more than one tune and uh, the tune I really like is the one that uh, is in a hymn book that I know. But I've had to extend the words to fit with the other tune which goes, and you all know it, is Finlandia by Sibelius, and I think we know it pretty well. Ready? Let's sing. I saw the Lord. He moved my soul to seeking me. It was not I that found a make you want to worship Lord thank you that you reached down that you sent Christ down and you've lifted us up we give you thanks Lord we pray that you'll equip us to help other people who do not believe help us Lord to love them to respect them and to speak with them of your goodness and greatness we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.